Hi, this is Making Connections, a podcast by the Flame University Writing Center. In this podcast, we talk about academic research and we connect it with issues of general interest. We connect it with the world around us. With me today is Dr. Kedar Kulkarni, Professor of Literary and Cultural Studies at Flame University. Kedar has a uh, has an interest in literary transitions in particular, and he has an upcoming book, which I guess the working title is Literature in the Making: Authority, Genre, and Performance in Western India, seventeen ninety to eighteen ninety. So, Kedar, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aditya, for having me here. And uh, just a, a slight correction: my book isn't forthcoming yet. I'm searching for publishers. Hopefully, someone will. Bite on that fishing line, and uh, please just call me Kedar. That's totally okay. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's that's a matter of time. But the uh, the important thing is that the book is the book is done, right? The book yeah. is yeah. Uh, two days back, I reached the end of my conclusion. Okay. I hit a couple of spaces and was very proud to write Pune 2019 at the end of the manuscript. Uh, it was a very satisfying feeling. Okay, so uh, to begin with, I mean, when we look at this. Um, this focus area of yours 1719 to 1790 to 1890 uh, literature in the making mm-hmm. um, what 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 got what what's your interest in the subject and what kind of compelled you to work on this and this particular time period yeah i mean so there are many compelling reasons uh, to look at this time period and i think i think we often get hung up upon time periods on kind of special topics within a time period or thematic things across time periods but i think essentially when we think about literary studies mm. um it's like any other discipline which is it tries to paint a picture of the world mm. through the lenses of that discipline so it may be that economics looks at uh conditions of exchange between persons of uh, literary studies looks at literary texts produced by people um and how they see their relationship to the world through those literary texts mm. and and i think ultimately what that means is it's not just the world we're thinking about through literature but we're also looking at what literature is on its own right mm. so what is literature and um what is it about literature that lets you describe the world in a particular way mm. and when we engage in literary criticism um we engage in how to think about literature and the world in in new and exciting ways mm. every time so one of the examples i can give you is sigmund freud or carl jung mm. uh their interventions in psychology completely transformed the discipline but it also transformed how we think about the human mind and psychology and i think literature also engages with items with literary texts in this way mm. um psychology literature sociology they're all interrelated disciplines that all think about one object area as primary and then other ones as secondary yeah um so in this respect yes i am interested in a what literature is mm. what literature does in the world in society um and also um i'm interested in literature of a specific time period in a specific place mm. um and which covers a specific theme and where well in western india in the late 18th through late 19th century yeah so why why that time period i mean what was going on then this kind of 100 year period that you've chosen what, what what why did you focus on that what what's changing what's transitioning at that time the 19th century is often seen as a time period in which 
many of our modern institutions take take shape mm. in the way that they are. Uh, many of our academic disciplines take shape during the 19th century. And um, uh, obviously things like nations mm. happen in the 19th century, which are, at the end of the day, technologies of governance, mm. right? We move from oftentimes kingdoms to parliamentary or constitutional monarchies of some sort. So it's, it's a huge uh, epochal shift um, that we think about of the 19th century. And to add to that, living here in India, uh, we are even more aware of the fact that a lot of things in the world are shaped by the experience of colonialism, mm. importantly. And that's um, colonial, colonialism is very different depending on where you are. Um, it's incredibly brutal and violent in the Belgian Congo. Mm. Um, it's slightly different in, <clears throat> in South America, by which time most countries have achieved independence uh, in the 19th century, in the early 1820s, I believe. You can yeah. correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and India is really in the thick of it. And one of the most interesting things for me is cities like Mumbai and Calcutta are some of the largest cities in the British Empire after London. Mm. You know, So what does it mean to live in a world where you have um, this immense portion of the world that's ruled by a tiny population in England? Mm. Um, whose largest city is, of course, much larger than Bombay or Calcutta, mm. but the second largest cities and third largest cities in the empire are Bombay and Calcutta. Mm. So what is the relevance of the colonies to the empire? So that is one of the most interesting things for me about the 19th century. And the time period of my book actually examines transitions to colonialism mm. from the end of the uh, Maratha empire or Maratha state. Um, mm. Some people call it the Peshwai because the Peshwas were hereditary ministers of the Maratha kings who are the descendants of Shivaji Maharaj. Um, so and you're, you're kind of, I mean, you're, you're looking at this from the point of view of how of how literature changed. So mm -hmm. the focus is not, I, I guess, not, not the workings of colonialism themselves, but... Yeah. It's more about how, how literature deals with this and many other things, right, in, in its, its transformation. Absolutely. So, I mean, the, the larger point is that if many of our academic institutions, disciplines, many of our social institutions, our governmental structures are really forming during the 19th century, mm. can we see something similar mm. happening with literature okay. itself? Okay. Mm. And one of the questions I ask specifically is, um, in some classic work on English literature, um, people talk about how the colony becomes a site where the canon of English literature is formulated. Hmm. Because you have all of these officials in London who are going to India to do whatever governance activities they're doing. And, um, and you also have all of these Indians in India who are being recruited into the civil service. And you want a buffer group of people who are separating you know, the British from the rest of the Indians, mm. and they're taught to be English. 
through reading things like literature, yeah. right? And so it is in that process of pedagogy that you have the formations of an English literature canon. Mm. Between that and and then that canon is exported back to England mm. to teach the lower classes in England how to behave like proper Englishmen. Mm. So what's amusing to me is the idea of English canon is invented for Indian governance mm. and then sent back to England so the upper classes can rule the lower classes over there. But did the English really have an interest in giving us a canon? I thought they pretty much wanted to create a population of clerks who couldn't... Yes, they wanted a buffer population okay. that was um, English in tastes and uh, English in kind of preferences, but obviously not English in the way they look, yeah. right? So they wanted to create a class of people who know how to be English, but cannot be English by virtue of their race, right? Um, so that's, I started thinking about this, and I wondered to myself, well, if this is how the canon of English literature is being formulated, what is happening to various Indian literatures mm. at this time? Mm. Are they being similarly canonized? How is the practice of literature changing at that time in those spaces? Mm. And that really got me thinking about my book. Yeah. <clears throat> so you say that Marathi literary expression, uh, you know, at the time period that you begin your study, is performance oriented. Yeah. And that goes through a, a sea change, right? Uh, or, or, yeah. or, or perhaps not so much, I, I, I don't know, in, in terms of the, yeah. the advent of print technology. And as you say, in these um, in the concepts of authorship uh, and genre. Yeah. So could you you know share something about that? Yeah. So there's a wide consensus in the Marathi scholarship um, that there are three kinds of literature uh, up to the late 18th century in Marathi, and uh, I'm going to give you the Marathi words, and then obviously the approximate English words for this. There's Santakavya, hmm. Saint Poetry. Hmm. There's Shahiri uh, Kavita. Yeah, Shahiri Kavita. Okay. And there's uh, Pandit Kavya. Hmm. Or, um, and basically, the Shahirs were a group of traveling poet performers hmm. who have been called popular, Lokik, and they primarily sang Bawadas and Launis. Hmm. Um, obviously, the Pandit Kavya was, um, has been seen traditionally as derivative of the Ramayana and Mahabharata. Hmm. And Santa Kavya is based on the annual pilgrimage to Pandarpur that takes place in the month of Ashar um, from all over various um, various processions of various saints, major saints, just Tukaram, Yameshwar. Etc. That hap um, that was happened recently as well. That happened recently, and yeah. uh, it is a very long tradition. There are yeah. records of this in the 11th century, yeah. um, and obviously and I, it I still had, goes on. I had, yeah. I had no idea about it. Yeah, it's it's, it it's huge. Like I think I would argue it is the most. It's probably the largest gathering of poetry anywhere in the world that happens annually. And what's beautiful about it is. You know, I know these songs. Mm. Many of them are hundreds of years old, and I grew up singing them, mm. having not even grown up in Pune. You know, mm. so um, so until the end of the eighteenth century, pretty much, I would say all three of these genres constituted almost a total literary experience mm. in the Marathi language. Okay. Um, and that's very interesting because when we think about the word literary, we don't think about performance, mm. right? The word literature comes from uh, the literatus in mm. Latin, which is essentially the man of letters, mm. right? And so there's an emphasis on reading and 
writing as yeah. a practice. But in Marathi, uh, all of these genres of poetry are performed, hmm. right? So whether it's Pandit singing some Akyan uh, or some story from the Ramayana Mahabharata, they're performing it as a Kirtan. Hmm. You know, uh, if you do, if you go on this pilgrimage to Pandarpur in hmm. the Palki, then you are going along with these processions and you are singing the songs personally. Hmm. If you watch a Shahir giving a Pawada, then he is singing the Pawada. Yeah. And same thing with Launis, oftentimes women are singing the Launis. Hmm. So the distinction between reading literature and performing it, hmm. that is a distinction that, you know, practically doesn't exist. Hmm. And so a lot of these Shahirs would have their own notebooks of poetry. Um, but they would use them as performance guides. Okay. So they wouldn't read from this notebook in performance, right? Um, so that really asks, begs the question, what is literature then? Is it mm. written activity? Is it performance activity? What is it? Yeah, so, and I'm just wondering, because you were referencing the, the processions which have, hap- which have happened just recently, mm-hmm. uh, and saying that it's the same songs, that, and the same poems that, that you grew up hearing, and you know, which date back a long, a long, long way. Yeah. But so that seems to suggest that you know many things have not changed. Uh, but of course, you, the period that you're talking about, there is there is change happening as well. So because um, you, you reference the fact that the swan song was sung for um, for for the for performance as such. Well, I mean, when we talk about change, yeah. there are lots of things we can talk about, right? Yeah. Um, but let's let's let me just say so. One of the reasons I talk about performance mm. uh, and literature together is mm. because if you think about literature in Marathi, mm. um, then until the nineteenth century, it was called Vangmai. Mm. Vangmai means um, it means uh, that which is spoken essentially. Okay. Like mm. Vangmai comes from Vach, mm. and Vach means speak mm. in Sanskrit. You know. Mm. And so the idea that literature was Vangmai mm-hmm. is very different from the English notion of literature as lettered practice, where mm-hmm. you read and write. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, okay, what can we do with this definition, especially given that all these three kinds of pandits, shairs, or santa kavis are all kind of doing something that's more than just reading and writing, they're mm-hmm. performing it as well. Mm-hmm. So that's why I was like, okay, let's think about this literature Let's think about what it means to talk about literature as a concept. Mm. And also let's think about it through a notion of performance. Mm. Okay? So when you talk about change then, <clears throat> one of the ways you think about change is to follow literary agents. Like who is producing things? Yeah. Who was producing it in 1895? I'm uh, sorry, who is producing it in 1795? Mm. Who is producing it in 1890? Mm. Are they the same kind of person? Are they different kinds of persons? Mm. Um, who is kind of controlling that activity, you mm. know? And um, so I looked at kind of, uh, one of the ways I thought about this was this one book called the Navneet, mm. Atva Marathi Kavitan Cheveche, or um, Selections from the Marathi Poets, mm. which is a, probably, I mean, I have been told, but I haven't been able to confirm, that this is the most reprinted book in the Marathi language. Mm. And what it is, is that it is, it's an anthology of poetry. Mm. So it starts in the year 1200 something, and it goes all the way till the mid 19th century. Mm. And it is selections from the Marathi poets. And you have the editor of this, uh, one fellow named Parshuram Pant Gordbole, mm. um, compiling this anthology in 1854. 
Okay, so okay. It, it comes into being as an anthology in this period that you're studying? In this period that I'm studying. Okay. And so when we think about processes of canonization mm. as an institution, then we think about how, how certain texts are deemed more worthy and others are deemed less worthy of reading, right? Mm. And so this anthology essentially creates a canon mm. in ways that um, was not always the case before. I don't want to say there was no canon before because that would also be inaccurate, mm. but it kind of it has a it has a consolidating uh, power over that. And so, how do we think about that consolidating power in relationship to authority? Mm. Well, Gordbole is the official pundit to the Marathi translator, and he essentially has free reign to design this book yeah. that's used <clears throat> as a pedagogical tool, mm. both in Barchala's and uh, schools in India and Maharashtra, mm. and also to teach colonial officials Marathi. Mm. You know, so here we have a literary authority, mm. and how his how is his authority different from say someone uh, a generation earlier? Mm. And so that became the basis of like, okay, we have authority. This is a good book to focus on. Um, it becomes a reference point for many later poets, modernist poets in the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. They copy, they imitate, they modify those forms, they play with those forms, they experiment with those forms. Mm -hmm. So let's think about this fundamental in one chapter as what is an authority figure mm -hmm. in colonial India mm -hmm. and how is that different from what came before. And what I realized is, well, this is a textual authority. He is an editor. Mm -hmm. He is not himself... Um, a, a famous Kirtankar. Hmm. So how did he? How how is it that it, it came to him to do this anthology? So that's also very interesting. So um, in this project, one of the amazing things for me is you know we live in Pune, hmm. and so I went to um, a lot of a lot of uh, caste groups yeah. in India maintain genealogical records, hmm. and obviously. The more privileged you are, the more records you have anywhere in the world. Mm. Um, and so Gurbule comes from a very privileged section of society. He's a Chitpavan Brahmin. And there is a Chitpavan Sangha in Sadashivpet, maybe, or just off, off of Tirak Road. I don't know if it's Sadashivpet exactly proper. Mm. And so I went there and I looked at the Gurbule uh, Kulavruttant or the Gurbule uh, family history. Okay. And. Um, it turns out that this guy, his grandfather might have been in the service of the Peshwas, but in uh, early on, in the early 19th century, before the turnover from the Peshwa government to the colonial government, mm -hmm. he was working in some scribal kacheri, mm -hmm. um, doing some kind of bureaucratic scribal task. Mm -hmm. And from there, he somehow, so he was already very literate, but from there, somehow, he switched over to become the official translator to the uh, colonial official. Mm -hmm. uh, was it J.T. Molesworth or Thomas Candy? One or the other. I don't remember exactly which one was the mm -hmm. higher end rank and which one was lower at mm -hmm. this moment. But this is easily, you can find it online. It might have been, I think it might have been Candy or Molesworth. Molesworth. I think it might have been Molesworth was the first one and he was his translator. Mm -hmm. And then um, Candy had a younger translator who was different. Mm -hmm. So, um, so he switches over to this, and Molesworth says to him, once again, hmm. I should check my facts on this. It's important to say this on there. That's okay. yeah. <laughs> um, and so he switches over, and then just at the same time that the English curriculum is being 
codified. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine he gets his directive from Molesworth to say, hey, can you also design something to teach Marathi? Mm-hmm. So this book, the Navneet, is entirely funded by the colonial government, mm-hmm. by the educational department. And so it has massive print runs. Every edition has 4,000 copies printed, mm-hmm. which is a huge print run. By contrast, most novels during this time have only print runs of something like 300 to 500, mm. right? And um, it comes out with new editions frequently. Mm. So first edition is 1854, and um, I will be going to Naigao in Bombay. Mm. The, there's a Mumbai Marathi Granta Sangralaya there mm. to look at the first edition of this book, because they still have one. And um, it comes out by 19... 70 or 78 they have eight editions that have been published Hmm. eight times 4,000 copies each is huge then they come out with a new edition and it's been continuously in print since 1854 the last reissue was in I think 2014 or 15 it's obviously been edited every time but um, so this is a really interesting book for me for that reason is what does it mean to create a basic canon for your literature yeah. and who is doing that well this is a literary authority right there yeah what is the source of his authority through the government legitimate his source is not through performance but mm. it's through the practice of editing and making it accessible to readers as opposed to audiences who would normally go to hear this mm. yeah and it's i mean it's interesting because of course this, the same kind of thing happens um, all the time, including now. It wasn't that long ago that Salman Rushdie made this infamous comment that the best writing in India is in English. I cite this in my book, and uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I know exactly. Go ahead. Yeah, so uh, and, and of course, that, you know, a comment like that, then there's there's there is backlash as as there should be, but that is also an an attempt from someone who has authority to kind of mold the literary landscape. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, I completely agree. I mean, I mean, the other opposite to Rushdie is um, is someone like Balchandra Neymarde, mm. who um, has this idea of nativism and how to use indigenous forms, yeah. uh, specifically Indian indigenous forms, for literary production. And what's funny about a figure like Neymarde, and he's widely discussed mm. in the scholarship, like any thoughts I can offer are going to be a drop in the bucket. Yeah. But uh, there's a book about him, a book about nativism edited by Makran Paranjipe called Nativism, Essays and Criticism. Mm. But what's unique about someone like Balchandra Neymarde is he also taught at SOAS in London. Maybe he, he wasn't as privileged as Rushdie. He didn't grow up on Malabar Hill in Bombay. Mm. He didn't study at like whatever Eton or rugby school and go to Cambridge. Mm. But he also taught at SOAS in London. And um, he also used to teach in an English department, you know? Mm. And uh, what's amusing is you have both of these figures who are essentially two sides of the same coin. Mm. One is saying that we have to be nativist and another one who's saying, no, we have to just be um, English language because that's the only good thing, right? Yeah, and it, so, it, it, that, that actually brings us back, brings me back in my thought to the question of what is literature because, of course, the, the connection with power and, and political authority is a fact that it's absolutely, we're, we're yeah. living in the world. But, um, but the question about, I mean, the ultimate question is what is literature? Right? So what's the value of what you're doing as literature? And I guess that's more important, at least for me as a yeah. as a writer or as a reader, uh, because you know how the sausage was made is is always um, is always questionable. But 
is but there any the, yeah. the point is saying that the sausage is made yeah you know it's not a given and that means we can unmake it and we can remake it you can remake it but yeah but uh, you know are you are you trying to feed people i mean i, I, I that, that's the question i'm asking like are, are all these you know what's your motivation are you kind of are you into literature as as such regardless of how how it's come about or what your connections are um, what do you mean? Are you into literature as such? That's a very complicated yeah, question. Yeah, I mean, what what are your um, what's your relationship with with literature? Like, for instance, when you anthologize or when you try to create uh, a canon, yeah. uh, you know, what are your intentions? Are you because I think that also will determine how lo- how long it lasts and what the in the quality of what you've done. Yeah. Um, because it's very difficult to say that. I mean, nobody, none of us, in that sense, are. Um, pure, right? We we yeah. all we all have privilege yeah, and, and authority, um, absolutely. But we are I making mean, interventions, so absolutely. as you are with this book as well. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. And um, with with this book, my main point. I mean, obviously, we discussed the Navneet. Mm. I have other chapters as well. And mm. one of the things I'm really interested in talking about is kind of, you know, what is the relationship? Zooming back out, we yeah. start out with this very big kind of what academic disciplines do, yeah. why the 19th century, what is literature, what is literature in the 19th century, what's literature in the 19th century in Western India, right? Yeah. So if we, if we zoom back out a little bit, yeah. what I'm interested in is, once again, going back to that moment where we spoke about the empire and the colony, mm. and thinking about, thinking through how the colony is not a backward site, mm. but actually is a site where empire is produced in some ways. Mm. So it happens first in the colonies, and then it goes back to the cosmopolitan, supposedly cosmopolitan center of London, right? Mm. So it's not about necessarily primacy saying, huh, hamne to pehle kiya hai. Mm. Uh, what are you doing over there, you know? Mm. But it's about, it's about talking about the global dimensions of how these productions happen in the world in the in the in the modern world which is obviously overrun by empire and capitalism mm. right so it's it's about showing how these connections are global mm. and also how they're uneven mm. right so it may be you can't possibly imagine 19th century india though indians read a lot mm. priya joshi has his book on library circulation on in the 19th century though indians read a lot you cannot imagine the literary culture to be primarily novelistic mm. because the percentage of people who could read was tiny. Mm. So we have to look elsewhere to think about formal innovation, modernism, and these topics. And one of the places to look for that is performance. Mm. So if we look at performance, we see a different story from the kind that Rushdie would tell. Okay. Right? Mm. Rushdie says, well, it's all in English. Well, I was like, well, if you look at other genres, Rushdie's a novelist. Yeah. And I think he doesn't know anything about other genres in India, right? Mm. And maybe that's because of his. Many, many people yeah. don't. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. It's, no, but I mean, I mean, with Rushdie, it's pointedly yeah. evident, mm. right? Um, but if you look at different genres, mm. well, how did a kirtankar become a sangeet natakkar? Mm. How did someone who does a solo performance with maybe two or three musicians and one or two actors mm. um, form a troupe, mm. a theater troupe, take those kirtans which are half sung, half recited, mm. and add music to them in mm. the form of ragas, mm. you know, who composed that music, how, what kinds of themes were common, what kinds of plots were common. Mm. So how did this Kirtan tradition, mm. which is largely based on the Puranas, Mahabharata, Ramayana, mm. become a Sangeet Natak tradition, mm. which also uses those same episodes from the Puranas, Mahabharata, Ramayana, etc., sometimes from um, classical Indian drama, mm. uh, etc., 
um, how do they use those same things and recreate performance mm. in the form of theater with a capital T mm. in a proscenium stage setting mm. with uh, a backdrops, theatrical backdrops outside of a temple setting. Kirtan mm. happens at temple and you can see it every day in Pune if you want, right? Mm. But what is the difference between a Kirtan and a Sangeet Natak? Right? Yeah. So I think that is a transformation of genre that also is something we can think about through uh, what happened at this colonial moment. And sorry, just to go back to your earlier moment about singing the swan song of things, mm. I think I think this is a very difficult topic to think about. Mm. I don't think genres disappear. Mm. I think genres remain so long as a social function they fulfill remains a social function that people find necessary to exactly. be fulfilled. Exactly. So so long as they are they remain yeah. literature or literary works in the real sense. Yeah. Fulfilling this function. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. Kirtan still exists. What exists now though is so much more than Kirtan, Shahiri poetry mm. and Santa Kavya, right? Mm. There's a wider and larger literary world mm. than existed in the seventeen fifties. Mm. You know? And so I think Maybe just because people were singing the swan song. Hmm. I mean, people always sing the swan song of things all the time. Like, you know, any, any, like, even I sometimes catch myself with my students saying, oh my God, students these days don't know anything, you know? Yeah. And I think we can't, uh, we, have to, we have to read against the grain of people singing the swan song. Yeah. But there's also the, the phenomenon of uh, monsters. What I mean is that when you have influences and you have this kind of concatenation of, yeah. of forces, you get some, sometimes you get some monstrosities and um, including what happens to traditional forms. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, absolutely. I, you know, with certain kinds of technology, with certain kinds of, you know, 100%. whether it's film music or whatever. Yeah. To this uh, day, I cannot bear to stand Hindustani music hmm. sung in a large auditorium hmm. with those awful bloody mics that they use. Hmm. The only way to listen to Hindustani Hindustani music is in a small setting, you know, no, with, you're, you're that, you're that with, guy, no. with, with 50 people, yeah. you know, where you can hear the musician's voice yeah. or the instrument without the aid of any microphones. Mm. Because what you want is the voice. You don't want the technology amplifying that voice, mm. you know. And uh, one of actually one of my favorite moments is uh, Vikram Sampath has this book on Gaurajan, who was the one of the first uh, recorded artists in India. Mm. And she was a woman. She was a... Um, Calcutta-based um, upper caste courtesan, essentially, figure. Mm. Her name, John, signifies yeah. that she was very elite okay. of, from this tradition, like okay. Umrah John. Oh, not a common, I not see. a common okay. wife, mm. not a common kind of lady of the market. Mm. Bazari, ye uh, uh, uh. So, uh, and at the end of every, uh, he has a recording of her songs. At the end of recordings, she says, "My name is Gaurjan." And it's actually really, it's really, I really enjoy this moment very much because it really talks to how you're trying to maintain some ownership mm. over this medium, mm. a technology mm. that once it leaves, it could be anyone singing, right? Yeah. And so there's another way to kind of maintain your authority after technology has kind of surpassed yeah. the kind of close connection between you and the audiences, mm. right? And what does what does a record enable you to do? Enables you someone in Calcutta to listen to your voice, even though you may be in Bangalore mm. or you may be in Chennai. You know, mm. so I think this technology of circulation undercuts authority. Mm. And her 
desire to say my name is Gaurjan at the end of every song she sings mm. is a way to reinforce that authority. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. That's why I think, uh, I mean, a book like this, a study like this, is really important to anybody who's grappling with uh, with literature in any capacity, especially at times of serious transition as we are going through now. Aditya, yeah, please tell any publisher of mine that anyone should read this book. It has an unlimited no. audience. In fact, everyone should read no, this but book. I, I'm actually saying that and I'm, I'm saying that, you know, in, in all earnest. <laughs> not, 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 not flippantly. Uh, I know you're earnest. Yeah. I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. Be- because, Earnestly, yeah, because because the question of how, of how you cope with transition and how you how you cope with transition while keeping in mind yeah. what literature is, yeah, is something. Otherwise, otherwise you get lost. Otherwise, yeah. it's you know um, yeah. because there are also blind alleys to go down, and there are off you know these monstrosities that you can yeah. you can land up with. Oh yeah, sorry, monstrosities. Yeah. Speaking of which, yeah, a lot of uh, transitions are not seen as. Um, favorable or welcome. Mm. So the first production of Shakuntala, mm. so uh, one of my chapters is about the play Shakuntala. Shakuntala has only been popular as a play once in its history. Mm. In the 1880s when Kirloskar sets all the Sanskrit padas to ragas as yeah. music, and there are over 200 of them and they're sung mm. for six years. They're making a ton of money on this play. Mm. That's the only time it's ever been popular. But if you look at the first reviews of this, mm. They're obviously, they are all according to intersections of caste and class and preference. Yeah. But one of the reviewers says, Shakuntala, this is a great drama. It just seems like Tamasha to me. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know? Yeah. And that's a real, that's a real burn. Like, and um, I think when you read a book like uh, Anand Patil's Western Influence on Marathi Drama, yeah. um, what you realize is a lot of these dramatists may be borrowing obviously traditions from the past in India, but they're also borrowing a dramatic convention, mm. five-act dramatic structure, this and that, from whatever you call ambiguously the West, yes. in quotation marks, right? Mm. And a lot of people, and the representational format of mm. like representing the gods as um, less than godly, as humans, mm. as bringing them down to a kind of a secular world. Like uh, Sangeet Subhadra, mm. you have Subhadra, Arjun, Krishna, Balaram, and all these people, but they're represented as though they're upper middle class men and women. Mm. And so a lot of people find this very disturbing. They yeah. find it quite monstrous, yeah. you know? How can you possibly do this? And mm. that is a conversation to have, absolutely. And obviously, people's tastes change as a result of that. Yeah. But so did they change when Duchamp put a toilet seat on in an art gallery? Yeah, you know? exactly. So I think the you know the acceptance that this kind of even radical change is actually normal, mm-hmm. but but also the the key which helps you or whatever the you know the compass which 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 helps a person navigate that situation yeah. is what everybody's looking for, and I I, I hope that your book. Um, is very valuable um, in that context. Uh, I look forward to it. And Thank it's been you. great it's been great talking with you, Kedar. It's been uh, my pleasure. Okay. What a delight. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. Thank you.